Hello, my name is <coughs> Manuel Rama Montaldo. I have worked for almost 30 years at the United Nations Secretariat, where I have been Deputy Director for Research and Studies, as well as Deputy Director of the Codification Division of the Office of Legal Affairs. Later, I have been for almost 10 years Main Professor of Public International Law at ORT University in Montevideo, Uruguay. In the course of the present lecture, in September 2018, we will examine various conceptual and historical aspects of the process of codification and progressive development of international law as it has been conducted in the United Nations and discuss some of its distinctive features and characteristics. We will also examine in some detail the main organ established by the General Assembly of the United Nations to that effect, namely the International Law Commission, and the manner in which this body has performed its functions. In the course of another lecture in this audiovisual library, we have already discussed the role played by United Nations bodies other than the International Law Commission, namely special and ad hoc committees of the General Assembly in the process of codification and progressive development of international law. <clears throat> As regards conceptual and historical aspects of the process in the United Nations, it may be useful to stress from the start that the encouraging of the progressive development of international law and its codification has been included by the United Nations Charter in paragraph 1b of its article 13 among the functions and powers of the General Assembly which is the organization's plenary body consisting of all the members of the United Nations. This function of the assembly is listed next to other functions of an eminently political nature, such as consideration of the general principles of cooperation in the maintenance of international peace and security, including disarmament and regulation of armaments, discussion of any question relating to the maintenance of international peace and security brought to it by member and non-member states, as well as by the Security Council, call the attention of the Security Council to situations which are likely to endanger international peace and security, and recommend measures for the peaceful adjustments of any situations which it deems likely to impair inter alia the friendly relations among nations. Furthermore, the same article, namely Article 13, which provides that the General Assembly shall initiate studies and make recommendations for the purpose of encouraging the progressive development of international law and its codification, also provides that the studies and recommendations can serve the purpose of promoting international cooperation in the political field, as well 
as international cooperation in the economic, social, cultural, educational, and health fields, and of assisting in the realization of human rights and fundamental freedoms for all. Why is it that I stress this? Because without denying in the least the eminent legal nature of the Assembly's function to encourage the progressive development of international law and its codification, it is also necessary to realize that in the conception of the Charter Drafters, this function is inserted in a political, social, and cultural context of other functions of the Assembly, for the performance of which the existence of an international law sufficiently codified and developed appears as a facilitating factor. In a world characterized by the emergence of numerous conflicts of interest among nations, the solution to those conflicts is easier carried out in the presence of relevant international law rules already in existence, drafted and developed taking into account the realities of the international society to which they will apply, and previously agreed to by its subjects. And this brings us to an essential feature of the process of codification and progressive development of international law as conceived in the United Nations, namely the trend towards achieving, achieving an international law of a universal character. This trend towards universalism may be appreciated from different perspectives, such as Universalism as an enhanced participation in the law-creating process, and b. Universalism as the development of norms applicable to the international community as a whole. As regards universalism as an enhanced participation in the process of codification and progressive development of international law, the United Nations has resorted to two main procedures to ensure the universal acceptability of its end result. One is to endow the organs, to endow the organs charged with the codification process with the truly representative character. The other one is the consensus procedure which such organs adopt for their decision-making process. As regards the composition of organs, Mention should be made in the first place of the fact that the sixth legal committee of the General Assembly of the United Nations, which is the organ where all the drafts prepared by its legal subsidiary bodies end up for consideration, is composed of all members of the United Nations. And the UN, the UN membership today is, in practical terms, almost coterminous with the universal composition. On the other hand, we shall see in the second part of the present lecture how the International Law Commission, which is the main subsidiary body created by the General Assembly for the process of codification and progressive development of international law, 
body of a permanent nature, this body tends to achieve in its composition a representative character of all regional groups and of the main forms of civilization and the principles legal systems of the world. Moreover, as pointed out by me in another lecture in the present series, the composition of a special and ad hoc organs charged by the assembly with a specific tasks of codification and progressive development of international law has also taken into account the universality factor. For many years, these organs were composed by political representatives of a number of member states selected in consultation with the regional groups in order to ensure that the organ in question <clears throat> would sufficiently represent all regions of the world. A number of codification conventions were drafted in organs of such limited but sufficiently representative character of a universal level. More recently, the General Assembly has also created ad hoc committees of, of an open-ended nature in order to carry out tasks of codification and progressive development. Furthermore, in a number of cases, codification conventions have been adopted in the framework of international conferences open to all states, such as, for instance, the 1961 Convention on Diplomatic Relations, the 1963 Convention on Consular Relations, the 1969 Convention on the Law of Treaties Between States, the 1982 Convention on the Law of the Sea, and so on and so forth. As regards the other procedures to en procedure to enhance participation in the process of codification and progressive development of international law, furthering <clears throat> in this manner its universal character, it relates to the decision-making process applied by the bodies endowed with such functions. In this regard, the consensus or no-vote procedure consists in taking decisions by not resorting to a formal vote. Although originally devised to solve an institutional crisis in the organization related to the need to avoid the application of Article 19 of the Charter on Suspension, suspension of Vote to a number of member states in, arre in arrears of their contributions to the organization, this procedure subsequently became the standard rule for decision-making in the assembly and its subsidiary bodies, as well as in codification conferences. Delegations would consider it desirable to seek consensus first and only if the reaching of such consensus would prove to be impossible would a vote be taken or, in other instances, no decision would be taken. By resorting to consensus, the text being the object of the decision-making would then represent the minimum common denominator attainable.
This procedure has become a standard rule on the basis of the perceived increased acceptability which would be enjoyed by a text so adopted, thus enhancing its universality. I now go back to the other perspective referred to earlier, from which the trend towards universalism in the process of codification and progressive development of international law by the United Nations may be appreciated, namely universalism as the development of norms applicable to the international community as a whole. Of course, a first interpretation of this expression can be that the provisions contained in documents emerging from the process of codification and progressive development may be binding on all states, whether through their expression of consent to be bound by the relevant treaties or through voluntary compliance with the recommendations contained in documents of another nature. But the expression development of norms applicable to the international community as a whole may also be the object of another interpretation and refer to something else, namely the development of norms contained in the codification final draft which are recognized as having a higher hierarchy than other rules and even having a binding character regardless of the consent of individual states. We may consider forerunners of this kind of rules certain provisions already contained in the United Nations Charter itself. For instance, Article 103 of the Charter provides that in the event of a conflict between the obligations of the members of the United Nations under the Charter and their obligations under any other international agreement, their obligations under the Charter shall prevail. Furthermore, the principles of the United Nations listed under Article 2 of the Charter, <coughs> namely sovereign equality, fulfillment in good faith of the obligations assumed under the Charter, peaceful settlement of disputes, refraining from the use or threat of force and cooperation, and cooperation with preventive or enforcement action undertaken by the United Nations, have their universal character enhanced <coughs> by virtue of paragraph 6 of said article according to which the organization shall ensure that states which are not members of the United Nations act in accordance with these principles so far as may be necessary for the maintenance of international peace and security. This provision is still conceptually relevant, notwithstanding the present-day practically universally members, universal membership of the United Nations. Among the rules to which we refer under this category are also the so-called peremptory norms of international rules, of international law, and rules containing obligations erga omnes. Article 53 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties 
provides that a treaty is void if at the time of its conclusion it conflicts with a peremptory norm of international law. The same article defines this concept as a norm accepted and recognized by the international community of states as a whole, as a norm from which no derogation is permitted and which can be modified only by a subsequent norm of general international law having the same character. Peremptory norms of international law are also called as a category jus cogens. <clears throat> they constitute an expression of universalism in international law to the extent that they are binding imperatively on all states regardless of the state's individual agreement with or acceptance of the norm. The International Law Commission has currently in its agenda the topic peremptory norms of, of general international law and is working on the elaboration of general draft conclusions thereon. Still, in the course of, pa of past sessions of the Commission, it has already expressed some statements on the subject. For example, in August 2006, the Commission listed the following as the most frequently cited examples of peremptory norms. The prohibition of aggression, the prohibition of slavery and of the slave trade, the prohibition of genocide, of racial, discrimina racial discrimination, of apartheid, and of torture. The basic rules of international humanitarian law applicable in armed conflict, as well as the right to self-determination. This enumeration is taken from paragraph 4 to 6 of the commentary to Article 40 of the Commission's draft articles on responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts, which deals with the international responsibility caused by a serious breach by states of an obligation arising under a peremptory norm of general international law serious being defined as involving a gross or systematic failure by the responsible state to fulfill the obligation. As stated in paragraph 3 of that commentary, the mentioned examples of peremptory norms constitute those substantive rules of conduct that prohibit what has come to be seen as intolerable because of the threat it presents to the survival of states and their peoples and the most basic human values. The practical consequences under international law arising from the violation of a peremptory norm of international law, aside from the nullity of a treaty conclude, concluded in violation thereof, are also expressions of the universalism underlying these provisions. When such a breach is of a serious nature, Article 41 of the Commission's draft 
draft on international responsibility, provides for all states an obligation of cooperation to bring to an end, through lawful means, such a serious breach. An obligation not to recognize as lawful a situation created by such a serious breach. And an obligation not to render aid or assistance in maintaining that situation. This is also without prejudice under Article 41 to the other consequences stipulated for all breaches in the draft, namely to cease the wrongful act, to continue performance, to give guarantees and assurance of non-repetition if appropriate, and to make reparation. Furthermore, since obligations arising out of parentary norms of international law also constitute erga omnes obligations, namely obligations owed to the international community as a whole, any state other than the injured state is entitled under Article 48 of the Commission's draft to invoke the responsibility of another state having committed the breach. As pointed out by the International Court of Justice in 1970, in the second phase of the Barcelona Traction case, an essential distinction should be drawn between the obligations of a state toward the international community as a whole and those arising vis-à-vis -vis another state. And by their very nature, the former are the concern of all states. In view of the importance of the rights involved, all states can be held to have a legal interest in the protection. They are obligations erga omnes. So far, the quotation of the International Court of Justice. As regards the blurry distinction between parentary norms of international law and obligations to the international community as a whole, also called erga omnes obligations, the International Law Commission, in the report on its 53rd session, noted that whether or not both notions are aspects of a single basic idea, there is, at the very, at the very least, a substantial overlap between them. But there is at least a difference in emphasis. While parentary norms of general international law focus on the scope and priority to be given to a number of fundamental obligations, the focus on obligations to the international community as a whole is essentially on the legal interest of all states in compliance. More recently, in the report on its 58th session, the Commission noted that while all obligations established by parentary norms or jus cogens norms also have the character of erga omnes obligations, the reverse is not necessarily true. Not all erga omnes obligations are established by parentary norms of general international law. 
This is the case, for example, of certain obligations under the principles and rules concerning the, the basic rights of the human person, as well as some obligations relating to the global commons. In the light of all these considerations we have just made, I think it is reasonable to conclude that both parentary norms of international law and international rules containing erga omnes obligations are a clear expression of universalism in the present day process of codification and progressive development of international law in the United Nations. There is a still another notion developed in the 1970s and 1980s, which originally intended to endow the process to endow the process of codification and progressive development of international law with the measure of universalism, but in practice has proved to be less, less successful. I am referring to the notion of common heritage of mankind. The contents of this notion was originally conceived by the General Assembly of the United Nations to be applied to the principles governing the seabed and the ocean floor and the subsoil thereof beyond the limits of national jurisdiction. This was done in General Assembly Resolution 274 of the 25th session. Under the terms of that resolution, no state or person would subject the area reserved exclusively for peaceful purposes to appropriation nor exercise or acquire rights with respect to the area or its resources incompatible with the international regime to be established for its exploration and exploitation which would be carried out for the benefit of mankind as a whole irrespective of the geographical location of states whether landlocked or coastal and taking into particular consideration the interests and needs of the developing countries. By and large, this regime, already contemplated in the General Assembly resolution which I have just quoted, this regime found its way into Articles 136 and 137 under Part 9 of the 1982 Convention on the Law of the Sea. In the 1990s, in the 1990s however, the agreement which after long discussions the international community found necessary to negotiate in order to facilitate the implementation of Part 9 of the 1982 Convention severely limited and voided of meaning the contents of the notion of common heritage of mankind as applied to that area. It is true, however, that the notion of common heritage of mankind in a version closer to its original conception contained in the General Assembly Resolution I just quoted, remains in force, this 
original notion with respect to the moon and its natural resources as contemplated in the agreement regulated the activities of the states on the moon and other celestial bodies of 18 December 1979, Article 11 of that agreement. It is also true, however, that almost 39 years after the signature of the treaty, only 18 states are parties to it, among which none of the states conducting outer space activities. The notion of universalism, which in its various perspectives we have developed so far, brings us to another essential feature of the process of codification and progressive development of international law as conceived in the United Nations. We refer to the notion of justice or fairness and to what extent the norms emerging from the process of codification and progressive development of international law in the United Nations tend to enshrine those values. This may be evaluated from three different points of views. First, from the point of view of the contents of the rules involved. Second, from the perspective of the procedural means to assert those rules. And third, from the point of view of the addressees of the rules involved. As regards the contents of the rules involved, there are three basic principles usually associated with the idea of justice, which underlie, pro underlie provisions concerning certain institutions of present-day general international law, namely the principle of equivalence, the principle of proportionality, and the principle of equity. The principle of equivalence could be set forth by the formulation equal situations should be treated equally. It often takes the form of reciprocity. This principle plays an important role in international law areas such as diplomatic law and the law of international responsibility. For instance, and in, co and in connection with international responsibility. Article 31 and 35 of the final draft adopted by the International Law Commission on the topic provide that the responsible state is under an obligation to make full reparation for the injury caused by the internationally wrongful act. Injury including any damage, damage whether material or moral caused by the internationally wrongful act of a state. Furthermore, subject to certain conditions, Article 35 of the same draft provides that a state responsible for an internationally wrongful act is under an obligation to make restitution, that is, to reestablish the situation which existed before the wrongful act was committed. As for the principle of proportionality, 
as an expression of justice or fairness in international law rules, this principle seeks to establish an appropriate correlation between the wrongful act and the punishing reaction or as regards the means used to, uh, to obtain a certain goal. Examples of international legal notions in respect of which this principle may be relevant include countermeasures, termination or suspension of the operation of a treaty as a consequence of its breach, protection under humanitarian law of civil populations in the, <coughs> in the course of armed conflicts, self-defense and a state of necessity. For instance, Article 51 and 49 of the final draft adopted by the International Law Commission on Responsibility of States for Wrongful Acts, to which we have already referred earlier, provide that countermeasures must be commensurate with the injury suffered, taking into account the gravity of its international of the internationally wrongful act and the rights in question, and also that countermeasures may only be taken in order to induce the state responsible to comply with its obligations. Furthermore, countermeasures are limited to the non-performance for the time being of international obligations of the state taking the measures towards the responsible state. This is just a, one example. The other principle closely associated with the idea of justice that we may find enshrined in legal provisions deriving from the process of codification and progressive development of international law is the principle of equity. For instance, Article 74 and 83 of the 1982 Convention on the Law of the Sea deal respectively with the limitation of the exclusive economic zone between states with opposite or adjacent coasts and with the delimitation of the continental shelf also between states with opposite or adjacent coasts. They both provide that this delimitation shall be effected by agreement on the basis of international law as referred to in Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice in order to achieve an equitable solution. For its part, Article 5 of the Convention on the Law of the Non-Navigational Uses of International Water Courses includes the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization and participation by the water course states as one of the three great general principles on which the Convention rests. The other two being the obligation not to cause significant harm and the general obligation to cooperate. 
the equity principle requires to take into account all concrete circumstances of a given situation so as to be in a position to reach the most justice-based solution to a specific case. Occasionally, the codification conventions themselves, themselves contain provisions indicating to the parties, or as the case may be to the tribunal involved, certain equity criteria or relevant circumstances which must be considered in a given situation. For instance, Article 6 of the 1997 International Watercourse Convention, to which I already referred, completes <coughs> Article 5, which enshrines the equity principle. I said that Article 6 completes Article 5 of the Convention, which uh, consecrates the principle of equity by giving certain criteria in order to apply that equity criterion. And it sets out a number of relevant factors which may facilitate a better application of the general principle to concrete situations. Such factors are the following, geographic, hydrographic, hydrological, climatic, ecological, and other factors of a natural character. The social and economic needs of the watercourse states concerned. The populations dependent on the watercourse in each watercourse state. The effects of, of the use or uses of the watercourses in one watercourse state on other watercourse states existing and potential uses of the watercourse, conservation, protection, development, and economy of use of the water resources of the watercourse, and the costs of measures taken to that effect. And last but not least, the availability of alternatives of comparable value to a particular plan or existing use. Furthermore, the article provides very useful additional guidance towards the application of the equity principle to concrete situations. In paragraph three, its paragraph three clearly states that the weight to be given to each of the factors which I have just indicated is to be determined by its importance in comparison with that of other relevant factors. It also states that in determining what is reasonable and equitable use, all relevant factors are to be considered together and a conclusion reached on the basis of the whole. On the other hand, it is also worth noting that in cases where a codification convention only refers to the equity principle to be applicable in certain areas without any further indication of relevant criteria or factors to facilitate a better implementation of the principle, it will be the task of the relevant judiciary or arbitral tribunal to develop such criteria or factors. This was done, for instance, by the International Court of Justice in its judgment of 3 June 1985 in the case concerning the continental shelf between the Libyan Arab Jamairia 
and Malta, where the court, in the absence of any further indication by Article 83 of the 1982 Convention on the Law of the Sea, set out certain criteria and factors to facilitate the implementation of the equity principle provided in such article and consequently to achieve an equitable solution to the delimitation of the continental shelf between the two countries. Also in connection with the principle of equity, it is worth noting that, as we will see later in our lecture, one of the topics in the long-term program of work of the International Law Commission is the fair and equitable treatment standard in international investment law. The recognition of the value justice as a result of the process of codification and progressive development of international law within the United Nations can also be measured, as we have indicated earlier, by the proliferation of rules emerging from this process which are devoted to the codification and development of means to assert the norms of international law when they are violated and to solve peacefully the disputes which may emerge on the international plane as a result of such violations or alleged violations. The United Nations Charter in its Chapter 6 contains numerous provisions to that effect. Article 33 provides that the parties to any dispute, the continuous of which is likely to endanger the maintenance of international peace and security, shall first of all seek a solution by negotiation, inquiry, mediation, conciliation, arbitration, judicial settlement, resort to regional agencies or arrangements, or other peaceful means of their own choice. It should also be noted that the statute of the International Court of Justice is an integral part of the United Nations Charter. Furthermore, Chapter 6 of the Charter lays down the role of the Security Council in the peaceful settlement of disputes, and Chapter 4 of the same Charter, in particular Article 14, the role of the General Assembly. In this connection, numerous General Assembly resolutions have significantly contributed to the development of the law of peaceful settlement of disputes. In particular, Resolution 37 bar 10 of 15 November 1982 called the Manila Declaration on the Peaceful Settlement of Disputes between States and Resolution 50 bar 50 of 11 December 1955 on United Nations model rules for the conciliation of disputes between states. Furthermore, it is important to indicate that most multilateral conventions which have been the result of the process of codification and progressive development of international law, conventions to which we will refer in the second part of the present lecture, also contain their own provisions on the peaceful settlement of disputes, which might arise on the application or interpretation of the respective convention. Finally, it should also be recalled, as noted earlier, that the recognition of the value justice 
as a result of the process of codification and progressive development of international law within the United Nations, can also be measured from the perspective of the addressees of the rules of international law and beneficiaries of international justice. The progressive evolution of international law in the course of the 20th century, and especially after the creation of the United Nations, has been characterized by the transformation of a law of nations where the leading role was reserved for the states into an international law with the humanist calling, which conceives the individual as the final addressee of the law. And this is a substantial development. This progressive evolution already started towards the end of the 19th century by considering the individual as an, of, as an object of a special protection during armed conflicts with the development of humanitarian law and certain aspects of the laws of war, a development which was crowned with the, with the adoption of the four Geneva Conventions of 12 August 1949 and its additional protocols of 10 June 1977. The progressive evolution to which we are referring also becomes evident in a telling manner in the various international instruments which project on the international plane the protection of the rights of the human being and make possible the direct access of the individual to international bodies or tribunals in order to assert his or her fundamental rights, such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, adopted by the General Assembly on 10 December 1948, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, adopted and open for signature in 1966, as well as its two optional protocols, and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and, Cult and on Cultural Rights, also adopted on 16 December 1966. To the documents that we have just mentioned, we should add a truly remarkable amount of documents, too numerous to list in detail in the present lecture, adopted by the General Assembly and, and other United Nations bodies, whether in the form of declarations or conventions open for signature, ratification, and accession, or many areas related to the protection of the human person, such as the following, the right of self-determination, the prevention of discrimination, the rights of women, the rights of the child, the prohibition of slavery, servitude, forced labor, and similar institutions and practices human rights in the administration of justice and protection of persons subjected to detention or imprisonment, freedom of information, freedom of association, employment, marriage, family, use, social welfare, progress and development, right to enjoy, to enjoy culture and international cultural development and cooperation, nationality, statelessness, asylum, refugees, war crimes and crimes against humanity, including genocide, as well as the creation of international criminal tribunals by the Security Council, 
the case of former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and the establishment by international convention of an international criminal court, the Rome Statute, to judge and punish individual perpetrators of crimes against humanity. And now we come to the second part of our lecture. Having so far in the present lecture dealt with conceptual and historical aspects of the process of codification and progressive development of international law as carried out by the United Nations, its main characteristics and features, we shall now devote ourselves to examine an organ that we already had the, the opportunity to mention on several occasions as we proceeded, proceeded through our lecture, namely the International Law Commission. Our purpose in this connection will be to draw a general outline of its nature and composition, its objectives and methods, to examine its past and present work, and to make an evaluation of the role it has played in the consolidation of international law as a main point of reference in the conduction of today's international relations. The Commission was established in 1947 by the General Assembly as a permanent and part-time subsidiary body charged with the performance of the functions which were entrusted to the Assembly under Article 13.1a of the United Nations Charter, as we have already seen, namely the progressive development of international law and its codification. That is to say, the Assembly decided to perform essentially this function provided in the Charter through this organ that it has created called the International Law Commission. The Commission is presently composed of 34 members who are elected for a five-year term by the General Assembly upon proposal of candidates by member states. In proceeding to the election, the General Assembly considers not only the fact that the persons to be elected should possess the qualifications required, but also that the Commission as a whole should represent the main forms of civilization and the principal legal systems of the world. As you can see, this is an expression of the trend towards universalism as a feature of the process of codification and progressive development of international law, to which we have already referred earlier in our lecture. In accordance with the criterion we just mentioned, the regional pattern of the Commission's composition was established by the Assembly in 1981 as follows. Eight nationals from, Af from African states, seven nationals from Asian states, later called Asia-Pacific states, three nationals from Eastern European states, six nationals from Latin American states, which were later called Latin American and Caribbean states, eight nationals from Western European and other states, plus one national in rotation every five years from African states or Eastern European states, and another national also in rotation every five years from Asia-Pacific states or Latin American and Caribbean states. According to Article 2 of the Commission Statute, the Commission's members do not represent the state of their nationality, 
but act in a personal capacity as persons of recognized competence in international law. In the event of a casual vacancy, the Commission itself elects a new member for the remainder of the terms of the former member. In the past, the Commission used to meet for a 12-week period from early May to late July regularly at the United Nations office in Geneva, except for a few occasions. But later, and after an initial trial in 1998, for reasons related to the facilitation of its work, and starting in the year 2000 until now, the Commission has divided its annual session in two parts. The first one from early May to early June, and the second one from early July to early August, always in Geneva. As already indicated, the objectives of the Commission are the codification and progressive development of international law. Although the Commission has concerned itself primarily with public international law, it is not precluded, according to a statute, from entering the field of private international law. Unlike some ad hoc or special committees established on various occasions by the Assembly, with a limited mandate to deal with the specific problem of international law and to the examination of whose codification we work, we have already devoted another lecture in the present UN series. Unlike these ad hoc bodies, I was saying, the Commission, the International Law Commission, instead has been established to play a central role in the global process of codification and progressive development of international law, and is entrusted with an overall competence in this area of activity of the United Nations. The topics with which the Commission concerns itself may derive either, either from a long-term program of work approved by the Assembly, which the Commission periodically reviews, or from a specific requests made by the General Assembly from time to time. The statute of the Commission defines progressive development of international law as the, prepar the preparation of draft conventions on subjects which have not yet been regulated by international law or in regard to which the law has not yet been sufficiently developed in the practice of a state. This is the definition given by the statute concerning progressive development of international law. The same statute refers to codification of international law as meaning the more precise formulation and systematization of rules of international law in fields where there already has been extensive practice, precedent, and doctrine. Although the statute attaches to the distinction I have just mentioned, certain methodological differences, in practice, the Commission has followed a consolidated and unified method whenever it undertakes the codification and progressive development of a certain topic without determining neither a priori nor at a later stage 
whether its proposed formulations constitute codification or progressive development. This unified approach, which has been followed by the Commission, has also been accepted by the General Assembly when approving the reports of the Commission over the years. In essence, the objective of the Commission is to produce draft provisions on a given topic. To do so, it appoints, as a rule, a special rapporteur on the topic, who is entrusted with the task of preparing reports with a view to proposing to the Commission draft articles on the relevant topic, accompanied by explanatory commentaries. These reports of the special rapporteur are considered by the Commission's plenary. The draft provisions they contain, uh, they contain are thoroughly discussed in the Commission, after which they are referred, together with suggestions by members or alternative formulations, to the drafting committee. This is a smaller body composed of Commission members which not only may concern itself with drafting points, but also, and most frequently, with the negotiation of substantive issues involved in the draft provisions. The efforts of the drafting committee are directed at finding a formulation which may result in consensus or general agreement in the plenary, in the plenary organ of the Commission. On the basis of the report of the drafting committee, the Commission, after further examination, adopts a set of draft articles on first reading and submits them to the General Assembly and to governments of member states for comments. It is worth stressing that the Commission, at all stages of its work, maintains, through different channels, contacts with governments to, so as to enhance the prospects of a favorable reception of the drafts it prepares. It does so at the very beginning of undertaking work on a given topic by requesting from governments through the Secretary General relevant data such as text of laws, decrees, judicial decisions, treaties and diplomatic correspondence. It may also send governments a questionnaire for the reply. Furthermore, the Commission submits an annual report to the General Assembly describing the stage of work reached on each topic within that session's agenda. The sixth Legal Committee of the Assembly discusses this report and the views expressed by representatives are made known to the Commission through the six committees' summary records and through a topical summary of the views expressed prepared by the Commission's Secretariat. Moreover, whenever the Commission finalizes the reading of a set of draft articles, the set is forwarded forwarded to governments for the written comments and observations. It is also to be noted that the Commission is assisted in its work by the Codification Division of the Office of Legal Affairs of the United Nations Secretariat. This unit not only acts as the Secretariat to the Commission, but it also assists in the latter's work by undertaking research 
and substantive studies, both at the request of the Commission and on its own initiative at various stages of the consideration of the topic. After the expiration of the deadline suggested to governments for submitting the written, the written views on the set of draft articles adopted on first reading, the special rapporteur, on the basis of those views and other comments expressed, both in the Commission and in the Sixth Committee, proposes to the Commission in a new report the modifications to the draft articles which he deems appropriate in order to render the provisions more acceptable to the international community as a whole. From then on, there starts a new process of discussion in plenary consideration by the drafting committee and reporting by the letter to the plenary. This process, which is called second reading, culminates in the, in the adoption by the Commission of a final set of draft articles on the topic which it submits to the General Assembly with a recommendation on, fu on possible future action to be taken thereon. Although the Commission sometimes has been criticized for what some perceive as a rather moderate pace of work, it should be understood that the procedures followed by the Commission, as already described, are designed to ensure a maximum degree of acceptability of its drafts. All this requires an inherently prudent pace, involving for any given topic a number of years of painstaking negotiation and reconsideration in the light of written or oral comments and observations by governments. As a result, the work of the International Law Commission during the last 71 years has been a decisive factor in the transformation of international law, which has evolved in the comparatively short span of seven decades from a group of rules and principles of a predominantly customary and imprecise nature into an organic and highly systematized set of written texts, whether in the form of multilateral conventions, model rules, guiding principles, conclusions, draft articles, and so on. This extremely fruitful rule of the Commission is clearly evidenced by all the final drafts it has elaborated so far, as well as by the topics on which it is presently involved and the plans for its future work. In 17 instances, the draft prepared by the International Law Commission became the subject of a multilateral convention. 17 instances. Large areas of international law have been embodied as a final result of the Commission's work and further action taken thereon by international conferences or by the General Assembly itself into provisions of a multilateral, multilateral treaty. 
These conventions included the first four conventions on the law of the sea, the 1958 conventions on the law of the sea, namely the Convention on the Territorial Sea and the Contiguous Zone, the Convention on the High Seas, the Convention on Fishing and Conservation of the Living Resources of the High Seas, and the Convention on the Continental Shelf. These four conventions became, at the time of their adoption in 1958, an important cornerstone of the codification and progressive development of the law of the sea. However, the quick pace of evolution as regards technological developments, the decolonization movement, and the attitude of states with regard to the rights over certain sea areas made it necessary to review many aspects of the law of the sea adopted in 1958, a process which subsequently led to the negotiation and adoption of the 1982 conventions on the law of the sea. Other international conventions which trace their origin to the International Law Commission's work and further action taken thereon by international conferences or by the General Assembly itself, deal with matters as important as the following. Reduction of stateliness, diplomatic relations, consular relations, special missions, the law of treaties between states and the law of treaties between states and international organizations or between international organizations. The prevention and punishment of crimes against internationally protected person in persons, including diplomatic agents. The representation of states in the relation with international organizations of a universal character. The succession of states in respect of treaties and the succession of states in respect of state property, archives, and debts. The law of non-navigational uses of international water courses, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, and the jurisdictional immunities of states and their property. In addition to this 17 conventions which, uh, to which I have already made reference. There are 25 other instances from 1949 to 2016 in which the final work of the Commission on a given topic has adopted another form, such as draft declaration principles, guiding principles, model, model rules, guides to practice, draft code, report by the commission or by a working group, and most frequently just draft articles not necessarily intended to become a convention. You may check in detail the subject matter and the exact title of each of these additional final drafts in the website of the Commission to which I will refer at the end of the present lecture. Suffice it to indicate here, for reasons of time constraints, 
that, in, that an analytical and comparative examination of all the topics on which the Commission has produced final drafts, as well as those currently in its agenda or in its long-term program of work, clearly shows the variety and diversity of the fields considered, which cover a broad spectrum of international law areas, such as its sources, for instance, aspects of customary international law, most aspects of the law of treaties, general principles, peremptory norms of international law, <coughs> unilateral declaration of states, also the subjects of international law. For instance, the position of states in international law, including the rights and duties, their immunities, the law of states' responsibility, of international liability, the position of international organizations, including their international responsibility, as well as the representation of states before them, the position of the individual, including nationality, statelessness, protection of persons in the event of disasters, expulsion of aliens, and international criminal law and jurisdiction. This broad spectrum of the Commission's work also covers international law areas such as diplomatic and consular law, including special missions, protection of diplomatic agents and other persons, as well as the law of spaces internationally regulated, such as the law of the sea, international water courses, transboundary aquifers, shared national resources, protection of the environment and protection of the atmosphere. It is important to stress that in most cases, the final draft adopted by the Commission is accompanied by commentaries article by article, which are extremely useful for tracing the origin and history of the relevant provision and give powerful insights into its correct interpretation as well as elements which may help in its practical application. A full overview of the scope of the Commission's work is not only given by the final drafts it has already produced, but also by the topics presently in its agenda as well as those contemplated in its long-term program of work. Topics currently being considered by the Commission are the following. Subsequent agreements and subsequent practice in relation to the interpretation of treaties. Identification of customary international law. Protection of the atmosphere. Provisional application of treaties. Peremptory norms of general international law, as we already said before. Protection of the environment in relation to armed conflicts. Succession of the states in respect of a state responsibility and immunity of a state officials from foreign criminal jurisdiction. Furthermore, the following topics are presently on the long-term program of work of the Commission. Ownership and protection of wrecks beyond the limits of national jurisdiction. 
jurisdictional immunity of international organization, protection of personal data in transborder flow of information, extraterritorial jurisdiction, the fair and equitable treatment standard in international investment law, as we also already mentioned. Settlement of international disputes to which international organizations are parties. Evidence before courts and tribunals. General principles of law. Universal criminal jurisdiction and sea level rise in relation to international law. As regards the choice of topics on which the Commission would perform its function of codification and progressive development of international law, along the years a variety of patterns has been followed. More recently, in 1998, to be more precise, the Commission has agreed on a number of criteria for the selection of topics. Those criteria are the following. First, that the topic should reflect the needs of states in respect of the progressive development and codification of international law. Second, that it should be at a sufficiently advanced stage in terms of state practice to permit progressive development and codification. Third, that it should be concrete and feasible for progressive development and codification. And four, that the Commission should not restrict itself to traditional topics, but could also consider those that reflect new developments in international law and pressing concerns of the international community as a whole. As to what will determine the final form to be adopted by a draft prepared by the Commission, that may depend on several factors. Nature of the topic, political climate in the General Assembly, whether or not states are likely to accept to be bound by mandatory rules on certain areas of international law, or, of the, or rather of the international reality, the nature of the new draft provisions, which may be of an interpretative or explanatory kind rather than binding, and so on and so forth. It is also possible that some broad topic of international law may have its basic aspects re regulated by a convention, and some other document of a different nature further develop some other aspects of the same topic. For instance, in the case of the law of treaties, the 1969 convention contains basic provisions regulating various aspects of the topic, including reservations to treaties. Subsequently, the 2011 Guide to Practice on Reservations contains pro provisions of an explanatory and recommendatory nature advising on the best course of action to be taken on the great variety of situations which may emerge as regards reservations to treaties. 
Also, on the question of the final form to be adopted by the Commission's final draft, it is important to stress that the fact that certain final drafts do not become or are not intended to become an international convention does not detract in the least from the usefulness and value that they may offer to governments, to judicial and, arbit and arbitral organs, and to practitioners as a reflection of international law, law rules and principles which are applicable in the relevant topics covered by those drafts. As we said before, those drafts have been the final product of a painstaking process of drafting, the various stages of which we have already described. That drafting process has taken account of judicial and arbitral precedents, the practice of states, the writings of international legal scholars, the views expressed by governments, and so on and so forth. And consequently, they constitute an extremely important point of reference as regards the international law in force relating to the various topics covered by such drafts. At this final stage of my lecture, it might perhaps be relevant to point out that the plenary meetings of the Commission in Geneva, where it usually meets, are open and often attended by members of the diplomatic community, international legal scholars, and students. As the main organ charged by the Assembly with the task of codifying and progressively developing international law, attendance at the Commission's meetings may provide the interest person with a greater insight into the different stages involved in this process, the various trends emerging with regard to different aspects of a given topic, and the technical and political difficulties involved. In addition, in addition to attendance at meetings, the informal contacts and exchange of views with the Commission's members who are experts in international law representing different legal systems and hailing both from developed and developing countries may also broaden the perception of the intricate interaction of legal, economic, political, and social elements which are often involved in the process of the codification of a topic and of its progressive development. Furthermore, and with a specific reference to diplomatic and government officials in general, a close contact with the Commission's work may enable them to be in a better position to advise their capitals on the numerous occasions in which the Commission, through different procedures, seeks the views of governments on various aspects and at different stages of the draft articles it produces. 
A similar benefit could be obtained from the attendance at the six committee meetings during which the Commission's annual report is discussed with the presence of the Commission's chair and often of some of its members. Finally, I wish to recommend to those persons who may wish to seek further information on various aspects of the Commission's work, the website on the International Law Commission maintained by the Codification Division of the Office of Legal Affairs of the United Nations Secretariat, which provides an extremely useful access to all the documentation of the Commission as well as relevant information thereon. I thank you very much for your attention.